Um, the reading today is taken from Luke chapter 19, from verses 28 to 48, and that's on page 878 in the Church Bibles. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied onto which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, who had known this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thank you, Anna, for reading for us. Um, as we look at this part of God's word together, we find two things that would be really helpful. One, first of all, keep the Bible open, please. It would really help you to see the text as we work our way through it. Uh, but also just on the service sheet, on the back of it, there's just uh, a short outline for you and some space to make notes if you'd like to do that, if you find that uh, helpful. As we come to this passage, let's uh, pray. Ask God for his help uh, to us. Our Father, we believe that as your word is read and then preached, uh, that we hear your voice, that you speak to us. And yet we know our own hearts, we know that our we're hearts are easily distracted by what's going on in our lives and even just things going on in the room. And so, Lord, we pray you'd keep us from that, help us to concentrate. Uh, but we know, Lord, too, that it's not just distraction, but our hearts can sometimes be hard towards you. And so we pray that as we hear your voice, that we would not harden our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever taken children on holiday, then you'll be familiar with the backseat shout of, are we nearly there yet? 
It's one of parenting's great joys. Um, Bless them. No, not really. It's pretty annoying. But if we're honest, the kids are only articulating what we all feel. The purpose of any journey is, of course, to reach the destination, to get to get there. We want to get there, and, and that's what we've been waiting for, sometimes for a really long time. And we've been, over the last few months, on a journey with Jesus, way, way back in chapter 9. Luke told us, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the destination. And since then, we've been on this journey. And we may have found ourselves asking from the back seats, Are we nearly there yet? It's been a while. Well, good news, the destination is finally in sight. Let me just show you that in our passage this morning. Luke gives us several locations, doesn't he? It begins in verse 28. When he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. So here he is, he's, he's on the far side of the Mount of Olives. It's on the eastern side. Just over the other side of the hill is the city. Then verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he comes over the mountain and makes his way down the other side. Verse 41. As when he drew near and saw the city. We're getting closer. Verse 45. And he entered the temple. Verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. So he's arrived. The journey's over. He's reached his destination. And for us who've tracked with him on this journey, we know what to expect when he gets there, don't we? We expect his death. We've been following the cross-bound Christ He's told us how the journey ends. He's told us several times, actually. And, and the most recent and perhaps the clearest occasion is in chapter 18, verse 31. If you just uh, look on page 878, it's just right up there in the top left-hand corner, where he told us this. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. That's what we're expecting as this journey ends. The cross, and then the resurrection. And it will happen, but it's in a few chapters' time. Before it does, there's still a little more for Jesus to say and do. Because before he's crucified, he wants us to be certain of who he is, that he is the Christ. He's the cross-bound Christ. Now here's how we'll see this in our passage uh, this morning, and it's on the back of the service sheet. We'll see the worship of Christ, the weeping of Christ, and then the words of Christ. Worship, weeping, and words. The worship of Christ, verse 28 to 40. Now, donkeys are not particularly impressive animals. I hope you'll agree. Um, If you were to call someone a bit of a donkey, 
You're not going to be paying them a compliment. You can try it afterwards if you want, see how that goes down. I don't possess the glory of, and the power of, uh, say, a war horse, for example. They're not status symbols. They're beasts of burden. They're humble creatures that you use, basically, just to carry your stuff. They're not Bentleys. They're pretty much just a white transit van. And so it's really strange, isn't it, that Jesus sets up his entry into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, on a colt, as a donkey, a young donkey that's never been ridden. And Jesus does set it up, doesn't he? In fact, Luke goes out of his way to show us that he does. Five whole verses just on the finding of this animal. Let's read verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village that in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Five whole verses. Now, why does this matter so much? Why is it so important to Jesus? Why is the donkey important? Well, the answer to that is that by doing this, he is consciously declaring himself to be the Christ, to be Israel's king. See, before he's crucified, Jerusalem must know exactly who he is, that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah, that's the anointed one, God's king. It's Christ they'll be crucifying. And we need to be certain of that because that's just not the kind of thing that they thought the Christ should have happened to him. Kings should be glorious and majestic and, and powerful and successful. And, and in Israel's case, they thought God's king, the Christ, he should obliterate their enemies, not be killed by their hands. But Jesus will be a different kind of king, and he won't do that kind of conquering. He will be crucified. And so Jesus wants to make his claim very publicly that he is indeed the Christ, before that happens. The question is, how does him riding a donkey, a colt, into Jerusalem, how does that reveal that? How does that teach us that's who he is? And it does so because it recalls two Old Testament episodes. The first of those episodes is a thousand years before, and it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 1 in the Old Testament. There, King David is dying. And he wants Israel to know which of his sons will be the next king. He needs to secure the succession. So what he does is he gets Zadok, who's the high priest, and one or two others, and he tells them to go and get his own donkey, the sort of royal donkey, David's donkey, and seat his son Solomon on the donkey and let him ride down to a place called Gion in view of all the people. And there, when they get there, they're to anoint him uh, as Israel's king. 
As he rides there, uh, they're blowing these trumpets and they're all uh, raising these great shouts of joy and the people all join in and they create such a racket that we're told that the earth was split by their noise. Then Solomon rides back up to the palace and he takes his seat on David's throne. Now where's Gion? Well, it's a spring outside Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And so you can start to see the significance of what Jesus is doing. It's a reenactment. He's letting Jerusalem know that he is the true son of David. He's the true anointed one, the Christ. That's the first episode, but there's even more to it than that. Jesus is also fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. So the prophet Zechariah, he lived 500 years before Jesus. He predicted that the Messiah would appear at the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. But specifically, he also declared this in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Then get this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. You see, so never has a donkey mattered so much. Jesus is reenacting Solomon's coronation and he's fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy of the Christ. He's doing it deliberately and publicly. He's declaring his kingship, that he is the true son of David, that he, the Christ, has come to Jerusalem in humility, with righteousness, and bringing salvation, just as Zechariah foretold. Now, what is the proper response to such a king? It's worship. That's what we're to do when we recognize that Jesus is the Christ, God's King. We worship. That's what the disciples do in our passage. They lift him up and they set him upon the colt, verse 35. Verse 36, then they lay down this kind of royal carpet made of cloaks for him to proceed along towards the city. And then they begin to sing. They praise him with the words of Psalm 118, which is a psalm about the king's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives towards the city, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. To this point, Jesus is worshipped just for a moment for his true identity as the Christ, God's humble king who brings righteousness and salvation and peace and glory to all who will believe in him. Worship's the only fitting response from them and from us too.
But not everyone reacts this way to Jesus. And there's a really duff note sounded in verse 39, isn't there? This great song is going on. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now notice that they know what Jesus is doing. Do they know that this is him declaring that he's the Christ? And it offends them. See, they don't worship him as their king. And they feel that, well, he shouldn't really be accepting the worship that he's receiving for being the Christ. They want Jesus to shut everyone up. And of course, in that we see one of the great tactics of the evil one, don't we, that's carried on right up until today. He seeks to shut the mouths of those who proclaim Christ as king. They don't just not want Jesus as their own king. They want people to stop saying that Jesus is king. It's a bit like they're almost kind of happy for people to believe that themselves, but as soon as they start telling others, well, there's a big problem. See, the enemies of Jesus seek to silence his church. Isn't Jesus' answer wonderful? I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. The good news about Jesus cannot be silenced, no matter how hard men try. Even if they could, the creation itself would cry out in praise of him. Now this whole incident, I think, helps us to see the great question that Luke is going to pose to us in the final chapters of his book. Is this humble Jesus the Christ? Is he the king? Is he your king? Accept him as your king, bow to him, worship him, and what Zechariah promised will come true. He will give you his righteousness and salvation. He will bring you peace with God through his death on the cross for your sins. And he will secure your future glory but reject him as king and you'll face his judgment. And that judgment is real and it's terrible and it makes Jesus weep. And that's what we see next, verse 41 to 44. We see the weeping of Christ. Now tears are a bit of a strange thing when you think about it, aren't they? This kind of salty water just leaks out of our faces and for all kinds of reasons. When we're sad, when we're angry, when we're happy, when we laugh too much, or even when it's just a little bit too cold. And we still, I think, particularly those of us who are from a British culture, we have a strange relationship to tears, don't we? See, we have on the one hand, we have encouragement to show our emotions, you know, there's, a, there's a recognition out there that, that it's good for us to cry. It's a good thing. But still, at the same time, most of us feel like it's just really inappropriate. And, and so almost every time I've been with someone who's weeping through grief, or really for any reason, whether man or woman, they apologise for it. You know, they say, oh, I'm really sorry. And they kind of dry their tears and sort of suck them back up if they could. And I do the same. 
But Jesus doesn't apologise for his tears. He's a weeping Christ. They may have expected the Christ to not do this sort of thing, you know, to be a kind of strong, tough guy, stoic. But actually, if they knew the prophecy of Isaiah, this would fit perfectly. Isaiah predicted that the Christ would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here as he approaches and he comes over the hill and he sees Jerusalem, the city before him, we see that grief displayed. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This perfect man is a weeping man. And actually the word weeping, wept there, is slightly too soft. It it means to be racked with grief, to be sobbing. What is it that moves him? It's that this city has rejected the peace with God that he offers them. And he sees the judgment they bring upon themselves as a result. Verse 42. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus here makes a startlingly accurate prediction of Jerusalem's fall in AD 70. It's as if as he, as he surveys the city, he kind of sees in his mind's eye as he comes down the mountain, the Roman armies encamped around the city, their siege engines, the ramps set up, the storming of the walls, and the sack that follows with all its violence and bloodshed. And it's exactly what will happen. But why does it happen? Because, end of verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation. The time when your Christ came to you. When he revealed his identity to you, just as he has, just then. He came and you crucified him. He offered you peace, peace with God. But you rejected him as your king. You will not worship him, and so you bring your judgment upon your own head. And this is what causes him to weep. And if this one-off judgment in history, the fall of Jerusalem, causes Jesus' tears to flow, how much more will the greater judgment of all humanity bring him grief? And us too, For we know this grief, don't we, that those of us who are believing in Jesus, we weep for those who reject Christ and face his judgment, don't we? Those of us who've had family members or loved ones who have died rejecting Christ, we weep for them. Well, here is the weeping Christ, and we share in his sorrows. We've seen the worship of Christ. 
We've seen the weeping of Christ. And then in our final section, we see the words of Christ, verse 45 to 48. So here we see that his weeping does not make him weak. Jesus comes now to the temple, to the beating heart of the Jewish religious system, and what he sees there incurs his wrath. And I think we need to see the weeping alongside the wrath. We're to have a complete picture of the Christ. He brings judgment, but he takes no delight in it. He longs that people would turn to him in faith and find peace with God, but when judgment's required, he will not hesitate to bring it. Now, what's happening here in verse 45 to 48? Well, in the temple court, the religious authorities have set up a market. Now, people were permitted by God's law to buy animals for their sacrifices. That's allowed. That's not the issue. The issue is that this marketplace has moved from the streets of Jerusalem into the temple. The holy temple where God's presence resides the holy temple where people from not just Israel, but from all over the world can come to get right with God, where they can come to pray. But they can't do that because it's filled with people making profit instead. They've defiled the temple by their greed and have prevented others from coming to God in prayer. And Jesus will not stand for that, will he? He drives out the sellers. And then we hear his claim of his authority to do so as he quotes from the Old Testament. But notice how he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes it as if it's his own word, which of course it is. It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then as by his words he clears the temple of what's wicked... He then fills the temple with his words of righteousness. He begins to teach daily, and crowds of people gather to hear him. If you look over the page, chapter 20, verse 1, top of the right-hand column, we see the content of his teaching. He was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And when we think on that, it really is pretty remarkable He's been weeping over lost sinners, the city on which, on a, as a whole, will reject him and crucify him. Yet what does that weeping lead him to do? To preach the gospel to them. So he's calling out what's wrong, he's exposing the sins that he sees, and then he's presenting to them the good news of forgiveness of sins found only in him. Now, perhaps he thinks, look, even though most of you will reject me, and I know that that's coming, some may be saved, so let me preach to them. It's a remarkable act of grace. And as we think on that, we might start to see that that's just the same thing that we're called to do, isn't it? We weep for the lost. And what should our weeping do? Well, it should drive us to proclaim God's word to them, to expose sins and to present the message of forgiveness, forgiveness found in Christ, that they may be saved. As we think on that, we may also think, well, hang on, the two reactions that we get here to Jesus, the reactions that we've become familiar with in Luke, 
Well, those are the reactions that we face also as we do just that. Rejection on the one hand, the chief priests and the scribes, they're seeking to destroy him even as he proclaims God's word to them. Yet all the while, the people are hanging on his words. See, the words of Christ are life to those who receive them. They can't get enough. Yet they're judgment to those who reject them. What was true then is still true today. Well, we've reached the end of the journey. And we're about to enter into the cross and then the resurrection. But let's just spend a moment then as we close, just thinking about what we've seen and assessing at this final stage of the journey. We've witnessed Jesus revealed as the Christ, God's humble king. And the question that we're posed is, will we worship him? Will we accept God's king as our king? If we will, then we'll find peace with God, salvation. And then we've seen that glimpse into the heart of Jesus as as the weeping Christ, the one who mourns over those who don't recognize him, who reject his word. And we ask ourselves a new question. Do we weep as he weeps for the lost? Do we share in his sorrow? And then we've heard the words of Jesus towards those he weeps over. His word of his righteous wrath exposing their sins and his words of grace, the gospel, that by turning to him in repentance we may be forgiven and not be condemned. Let me close with the words of Zechariah once more. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognise together that the person of Jesus is indeed the Christ, your King, whom you have chosen We believe that is true and we worship him as he deserves. Lord God, we thank you too so much for his heart that he grieves over lost sinners. And we thank you too that his grief led him to proclaim the gospel to us. We thank you that there is good news in Jesus, that though we are sinful, we can be forgiven through his death on the cross in our place. We praise you for that great work of salvation that brings us peace with God. In his name we pray. Amen.